Well, hello, everyone. I'm Dave. If we haven't met yet, uh, what a pleasure to see so many of you out here tonight. Um, I'm going to tell you a story. Can we just turn me down a bit, please? Thank you. Uh, tell you a story about uh, my week. Earlier this week, I had the great pleasure of going to London. I haven't spent much time in London uh, before, but I had a wonderful time. Uh, I was invited to speak uh, at, a, at an event in a, in a church in the city of London, in the central business district, in the financial district, and I went there, and there was hundreds of of people there. Can I make it clear? It had nothing to do with me. None of them had ever heard it. It had nothing to do with me whatsoever. But I went there and I just had the most encouraging and wonderful time, which is strange, obviously, to be encouraged by the English. But nonetheless, uh, it, was, it was a great time together. Um, I came back uh, on Tuesday evening and I was met at the door by my loving wife and a hot meal. Um, my kids were still awake waiting for me and they told me how much they loved me, all that kind of stuff. And I went to bed that night after saying my prayers. I think it's almost safe to say the most Christian man in Northern Ireland. I was on a... You, could have, you should have seen me. It was absolutely incredible. That was Tuesday evening. However, by Wednesday, things took a bit of a turn. I got up in the morning. Um, my kids didn't want to go to school. Now, that's normal. We were driving them to school, and they wouldn't get in the car. The worst thing was it was pouring with rain, if you remember, on Wednesday. And so when you're trying to get kids in a car and you're outside, they're inside, and they're shouting and screaming at each other, you're getting soaked through. It really tested my patience. We drove to school and then they wouldn't get out of the car. They kept fighting each other. I'm getting soaked and soaked and soaked. And I realize in the midst of this that my shoe has a hole in it. Now, I put it to you. I don't want to make a scriptural proclamation here. But is there anything worse in the world than soggy, wet socks? I don't think there is. It's as bad as it gets. And so I'm there, soaked through, wet socks. Then I've got to walk to, to work, and I'm running late, and I hate being late. I'm very, very punctual. And I'm ashamed to say that I got angry. First of all, I took it out on my dear, dear wife. I took it out on my kids in the car. And as I'm walking to God with wet socks and a wet jacket, I took it out on him. Not even 48 hours earlier, there I was, a pastor in front of hundreds of people proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has transformed my life. And I want to stand here tonight and say that it's absolutely true. Jesus has transformed my life. But yet, not even 48 hours after I was standing there making that proclamation, I was acting in a terrible, unchristian, unloving, impatient, unkind, cruel why? Why is the Christian life so difficult? If you're a Christian here tonight, do you experience that as well? Why is it so difficult? It seems so simple. Over the last few weeks as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, we've seen some very practical and pragmatic bits of command and wisdom given to Christian people. Be kind, be compassionate, be merciful, be patient. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. None of those things sound too difficult. They sound very, very reasonable. They don't sound too hard at all. Yet why was it so hard for me this week? And when I think about it, why was it so hard last week? And the week before? And the week before? Over the past two months, three months really, we've been studying uh, the book of Ephesians together. And tonight, it's bittersweet, we, miss, we, sorry, we, we get to the, the final week in Ephesians. 
We've been able to see the big picture of what God is doing in this universe. He is gathering his people together. And then over the last few weeks, we've seen the very practical outcomes of being one of the gathered people of God. We're to be loving people, kind people, what that looks like individually in our church, in our marriages, in our families. We've been given the standard to achieve love, compassion, and kindness. But if you, like me, find that really difficult to achieve, if you, like me, find yourself falling short again and again and again, and the truth is, I know you do, then tonight's passage is a great word of hope. It's a great word of encouragement from God to us. Tonight, we hear the truth about being a Christian. It's not rose-colored glasses, this kind of, um, you know, sunshine and, and rainbow version of the Christian life. Not at all. The Christian life is tough. It is hard. It can be disastrous. But tonight's passage, which we're about to have read to us by Thomas, shows us what is actually going on to make it so tough? It gives us a diagnosis for the disaster, but not just that. It gives us the cure. All of us, the cure. And it's not a quick fix. It's not a silver bullet, if you're familiar with that expression. There's no, boom, immediately your life is going to be perfect. But whilst it's not quick, the change God makes is eternal. So I'm going to pray now, and Thomas is going to come up and bring us our Bible reading. And then we're going to think through what this passage means for our lives tonight. So let's bow our heads, let's talk to God, clear our minds, clear our hearts, and have the Bible read to us. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, and thank you that through Jesus, we can be saved. Thank you, Lord, that you are not a Lord, a God who is silent or quiet or distant, disinterested, but you care. You speak. Father, as you speak tonight through your word, Fill us with your spirit that we would listen. We would not leave here the same. We would be transformed by your power, by the power of your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite Thomas up now to bring us our Bible reading. Tonight's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10, and can be found on page 1177. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given 
me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare fearlessly as I should. This is the word of the Lord. So why is the Christian life so hard? We'll look at the opening two verses of that uh, Bible reading we had. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you, but if you have a Bible in front of you, keep that open there, verse 10 to 12. You can see within those first two verses, just not many words there, but there's three very express commandments given, three almost military-like commands. You see them there, be strong, put on, take your stand. In other words, if you are a Christian here tonight, be ready for battle. Be ready for war. But what kind of battle are we talking about? Let me make it clear. Look, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Christian life is a life at war, but not against people. We've got to be very clear about that. This is not a call to arms to attack human beings. The Christian life is a life at war with the devil, with evil spiritual forces, which operate in what's called here the heavenly realms, but also here on earth. Now, this is not a new theme, but the continuation of a theme that's been running all throughout the book of Ephesians. The words in verse 12, heavenly realms, well, you might have heard those before. They might be familiar to you because this is the sixth time those two words are mentioned together in the book of Ephesians. They're mentioned again and again and again because God wants you to understand that you are part of a much bigger story than what you can just see. We all too often have the worm's eye view on our life. You ever seen a worm in dirt that just burrow forward? God is saying there's a bigger story that you are a part of. The Bible makes it very clear that there is a spiritual world that you cannot see. It's called the heavenly realms here. And this spiritual world has a good and an evil side. And they're involved here on the earth. Now, it's at this point of the sermon that if I had brought along a friend of mine to church, I'd be like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. We're talking about the devil. Oh, I don't know what you think about the devil or Satan or Beelzebub, uh, evil spirits. Generally, there's two extremes most people have. One people can be unhelpfully obsessed with the idea of Satan and the devil. Even Christian people, they can spend a lot of time thinking about them, talking about them, obsessing over them. Or the opposite, a kind of cynical suspicion or maybe a flagrant just statement, I don't believe in that at all. I don't believe in evil spirits. I don't believe in Satan. When I was a child, um, which wasn't that long ago, I'll have you know, uh, there was a series, this isn't funny at all actually, there was a series of horrific murders in Australia in a place called Wollongong, uh, just outside of Sydney. And I remember the media breathlessly reporting that they were satanic murders because the killers had drawn satanic imagery on the walls. If you know, uh, like a pentagram and a circle and upside down crosses and that kind of stuff. There was a huge conspiracy that was fueled by the media and books for years and years and years that there was a group of Satanists operating in that area of Australia 
and they were out there to murder random people. Now, I remember as a child, I must have been eight or nine or something like that, reading those things and just being absolutely terrified. You know what I mean? Like absolutely horrified at the thought that there were Satanists, devil worshippers, and so I saw demons in every shadow. It later came out that the murderers were not Satanists at all. They were using these things to try and distract the police, which they did successfully. It's interesting, though, as I got older, well, the other extreme probably occurred in my life. I grew out of my fear of Satan and the devil and demons and because I saw no evidence of demons in my life. I didn't become a Christian until I was 28. I saw no evidence of any evil spiritual world. Well, I just thought, well, they don't exist. Certainly not in the way that you read about them in the Bible, Jesus pushing demons out of people and and releasing people from demonic possession. I never saw anything like that. I just thought they didn't exist. By the time I became a Christian at the age of 28, I was well and truly, absolutely, thoroughly confused on the issue of Satan, the devil, the demonic. Do they exist or not? And indeed, since I've been a pastor, let me be completely frank with you, I think many of us are confused. This is a very common question that people have. Is Satan real? What power does he have? Are there demons? Is the devil the same as Satan? Is he powerful? Can he control us? Well, the truth is the Bible actually doesn't speak about Satan that much. But we have a very clear picture in this passage of who he is and what he's up to and the power or not that he wields. Look again, verse 11 Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and against powers of this dark world. By that he means the earth. And so the Bible is making a very clear statement. And if you don't believe Christianity is spiritual in nature, you really don't understand Christianity. Of course we're talking about spiritual things. The Bible says, yes, the devil is real. And yes, he has some power. Ephesians chapter 2, a few chapters earlier, gives this incredible picture of conversion, of someone becoming a Christian. And it paints perfectly clearly for us that when people become Christians, they escape the clutches of the evil one. And what that means is that non-Christian people are in the clutches of the evil one. And that doesn't mean he controls people and makes people sin. You don't have that escape clause, I'm afraid. You are responsible for your own actions. But Satan can consume people, and he does blind their eyes to God. What's Satan's chief aim here on earth? It's not to get people to commit all kinds of horrific murders or possess people in outrageous ways. It's worse. It's to veer people away from life, from God, from love, from Jesus. And the way that he ordinarily does this is in completely mundane and ordinary ways. He presents to you, to me, non-Christian or Christian, the allure of pride, of selfishness, of lust, Verse 11, go back just one slide, verse 11. Even as Christians, the devil schemes against us. What that means is while we live in this world as Christian people, whilst our spiritual identity to God is completely transformed, we are still in enemy enemy territory, living behind enemy lines. But it's very important as Christian people 
can I just speak to the Christians here, that you don't over-egg the pudding, so to speak, give the devil more power than God actually allows him. You see, if you are a Christian, you cannot be possessed by the devil because the devil, the devil has been defeated over your destiny. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. This is about you, if you know and love Jesus, no matter how you feel about Jesus tonight. No matter how distant you feel you've been in your walk with God, if you truly are a Christian, this is a statement about you because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And what that means, if you're a Christian, you can't be possessed by him. You can't be taken over by him. The exorcism industry is it's nonsense. That word exorcism means departure. And the devil's already been exorcised from you. It's already taken place when you became a Christian. So the strategy the devil has, verse 11, look again, verse 11, the strategy the devil has is to scheme, to whisper in your ear. So what does the devil whisper in your ear? You can't possibly be loved by God, not after what you've done. Not after it's been so long since you came to church, so long since you read your Bible, you couldn't possibly be loved by God. Or perhaps he whispers a different way. Don't worry what God thinks. Do what you like. Click on the link. Follow your lusts. Follow your intentions. Follow your greed. In fact, it's the same alluring, the same temptation he's been doing since the Garden of Eden. Come and taste this fruit. He tries to reject God and get you to reject God. And that's why this passage is so pertinent. Pay particular attention to verse 12. Have a look at it. For our, what's that word? Struggle is not against flesh and blood. You see, these verses in front of us that we read, they're not just a warning to Christian people about the schemes of the devil. This is a strategy. The word struggle literally means wrestle. But not like the World Wrestling Federation with Hulk Hogan or anything like that. Like Greco-Roman wrestling, grappling. What this is saying is that as a Christian, you will struggle, but you are in the struggle. Not a quick fix, not a bullet to the head of the devil and then you never have to worry about him again. But as a Christian, you are filled with the power of God in order to have the strength and endurance to fight against his schemes. To be a Christian, to be a Christian is to be involved in spiritual warfare, whether you're aware of it or not. When I grew up, one of the most popular movies uh, was The Exorcist. Has anyone seen that film? It is a terrible film. Just on quality and production values, forget the storyline, it's a horrible film. But in that film, the devil is given all kinds of power and demonic possession is generally shown by spinning of heads and levitating and particularly green vomit for some reason. Spiritual warfare is not that Spiritual warfare is the struggle that you and I are in as Christians. And it's not a struggle just for possessed Christians or prominent Christians or pastors or special people. The struggle in verse 12 being described here is the struggle that every single Christian faces in every single day of their lives. The struggle of what? What has Ephesians 4 told us? Putting off the old and putting on the new. That is the struggle that you're involved in. That is the Christian life. That is the wrestle. Is living like Jesus. And that's why it can be so tough. Isn't it tough? 
If you don't think it is, I want to challenge you. Try and be kind for the next seven days relentlessly. Try not to backstab or gossip, not to pass on that tasty morsel of information about someone. Try to think the best of every single person you come. I can't do it for five minutes, let alone seven days. The ordinary obedience of the Christian. What have we been called to do? To love, to forgive, to apologize, to serve. That is the spiritual wrestle. And so if you're trying to act like that in your life today, if you are intentionally trying to obey God in the way that you live your life, that is throwing blows down at Satan. That is being engaged in the wrestle. And that's why it can so often feel like one step forward and three steps back. Does anyone else feel like that spiritually? You know, you have a good day and then you decide to stuff it with a bad week. You have a great Monday but a terrible Tuesday or generally a good half an hour and a bad hour. You see, the struggle isn't indicative that you're not a Christian. It's indicative that you are. One of my best mates, uh, Joel, is a doctor. And I became friends with him when he was studying at university and he was a mature age student. So, you know, I'm assuming sat at the front of class asking all sorts of irritating questions constantly. And he was studying medicine uh, and he was married with children, with a mortgage, all these kinds of things. And so he had to put in enormous amounts of energy and endeavor and effort to get his degree. And at the end of it all, after years and years of hard work, he did it. Suddenly, there is Dr. Joel. And we celebrated. He had a huge party to celebrate the result of all his hard work. But funnily enough, what I observed, and certainly what he discovered firsthand over the following weeks, months, years, is becoming a doctor was not the end of the struggle. It was actually the beginning. You see, becoming a doctor did not mean, once he graduated, that he'd no longer have to work, he'd no longer have to think, he'd no longer have to give energy. It was just a continuation of it. The struggle was not then met with this blissful nothing, but they were the hallmarks of his walk. My dear friends, be very, very cautious of people who proclaim victory over one particular sin or another. Have you met people like that? People who say, I don't struggle with pornography anymore. That is dead. I generally think, liar. The Bible never promises victory over particular sins, this type or another. If that has happened in your life, absolutely terrific. But it's not, not a biblical promise. If you've met someone, perhaps, and you're even thinking of them now, and they've made you feel that you're inadequate as a Christian because you still struggle in one part of your life, in one part of your journey, and they seem to have conquered it. They seem that they're no longer tempted to sin, and they promise you, or they kind of allude to the fact that you're still struggling with it because you're so weak. Be very cautious of that kind of talk because that is not biblical talk. When the Bible talks of growing in maturity becoming more and more like Jesus. Sanctification is the biblical word. It does not discuss a silver bullet, like boom, suddenly you're done. Oh my goodness, I'm never going to struggle with that ever, ever again. In fact, the opposite. When the Bible talks of sanctification, of growing, of spiritual maturity, it talks about effort and energy and zeal and struggle. It's the fight that you're in. And if that is you here tonight, you're stuck in a rut of reoccurring sin that you just can't seem to get out of. Take hope. 
It might well be that is a hallmark of the Spirit working in your heart. Not evidence of his departure. And that's what you notice here. Have a look at verse 13. It's got these descriptive terms about the devil, but it's not said in fear. The words about the devil are brimming with confidence. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Here's this encouragement filled with confidence to us to stand. Now that is very strange military advice. I don't like to talk about it, but I used to be in the army. and um, (laughs) That's an in-joke if you don't know, because I love to talk about being in the army. If you want to talk about it later, we can. Um, Can I just say, it's very strange military advice. Stay where you are. (laughs) What sort of battles are you going to win? Just be still. Don't move. That is not a tactic for victory. Normally in a battle, you're trying to move forward, trying to take ground, to defeat the enemy, to capture objectives. But here, just stand. Why is that the advice we're given? Because the end result of the battle is already secure. The battle that you're in has already been won. Yes, you had a struggle, but you know the outcome. What is it? Look at chapter 1. It'll be on the screen, verse 19 to 21. The power of God that is in you when you're a Christian is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. My dear friends, you may not know this, but Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. He is victorious over death and sin. He triumphed over Satan and his schemes at the cross. He did it for the glory of God, and he did it for your sin. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, my dear friends, do you understand that Jesus did this for you? Do you understand that God loves you so much he sent his son to bear the punishment that you deserve? Yes, we still face the schemes of the devil. You will till you're dead, but you know the outcome. These are merely the final bullets from a dying enemy. You have God's power within you and on your side. So as you stand, you stand with your own strength. Not your own strength, sorry, but with God's. And that picture of God's strength then leads us to one of the most memorable illustrations probably in the entire Bible. If you've got a Christian background, you certainly would have been familiar with this because every Sunday school teacher in the world loves this part of the Bible because this part is just made for craft, isn't it? And there's eight weeks of craft in here. This is eight weeks of Sunday school lessons. This is a terrific imagery We're told we're at war, and so we need to prepare ourselves for the fight. And so to reinforce the idea of the battle we're in, the author of Ephesians, Paul, paints a military picture of a warrior's armor to illustrate not just the struggle, but the weapons at your disposal. And this is such a beautiful piece of imagery. I'm going to read it out. 13 to 17. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after everything you've done, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit 
which is the word of God. Powerful illustration, powerful imagery. I used to work with a dude in, in Sydney who had each of these little bits of armour tattooed on his body, like a little belt of truth on his hip, <laughs> a little breastplate of righteousness in place. I don't know what he did for the, the, the helmet. He didn't have a head tattoo or anything, but he's not Northern Irish after all. But nonetheless... But here's the deal. I think it's very, very easy to become over-obsessed with the armor and think, oh, I need to wear a belt of truth. Is that like a holster with a Bible in it? Uh, Righteousness in my heart? You're missing the point. This is an illustration. We know that. Because the author Paul uses a similar illustration in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but swaps the piece of armor around with with the words, with the terms. So the pieces where these Words exist, doesn't really matter. It's the illustration that counts. So what is this illustration showing us? Look at the words that each piece of armour represents. Let me read them. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, spirit. So you, ordinary Christian person, are in a fight against the devil and this is the the armour and the weaponry at your disposal. These are the armoury of God. These are the things that God wants you to use in your fight against the evil one. But why these particular things? Why truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the Spirit? It's absolutely crucial to understand that the language being used here is the same as the language that's used to describe Jesus and prophecies about Jesus, particularly in the book of Isaiah, written over 800 years prior to this book. Jesus is described in the book of Isaiah and in Luke chapter 4 as the warrior king. And Isaiah chapter 11 tells us that Jesus has the righteousness and justice of God wrapped around his waist and the words of his mouth will be a weapon. Isaiah 52 tells us Jesus' feet will bring us good news, the beautiful feet that bring the beautiful, glorious news. And Isaiah 59 tells us that Jesus stands with salvation as his helmet, righteousness as his breastplate, and zeal as his cloak. Now, this isn't a direct copy and paste from there to Ephesians. But the point remains, we're not told to put on the armour of God as if this is somehow divorced from the rest of Ephesians, divorced from the rest of the New Testament, or divorced from the rest of the Bible. This is reaffirming God's words to you all throughout Scripture. What are you to wear? What are you to put on in your fight? It's the gospel. Do you know that word? Do you know what it means? Gospel. That word means good news. What good news? The amazing news that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead for the glorification of God and the salvation of sinners. That Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Sinners. That's the gospel. It's the gospel that we're told to put on. You are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might by understanding that your strength is not separate from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The only strength you have in this life is who Jesus is and what he has done. They're not separate, they're synonymous. So how does that defend against the devil's schemes? We'll think about those words again. Truth. You have the truth of God at your disposal. What is the truth of God? That Jesus Christ died for sinners. 
So when the evil one whispers in your ear, as he will tonight, as he does tomorrow, as he might next week, when he insists to you that either you're too far gone and can't possibly be saved, or that sin isn't sin and it doesn't matter a jot, you have the truth of the gospel, that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, that sin does matter, but the cross is enough to defeat it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that is your daily call upon guilt on one hand, or burying your head in the other. Righteousness. Reminded that self-righteousness is meaningless. When you stand before God, what does he see on your own? He sees your sinfulness. He does not see your religiosity, your ritualism, your denominationalism. He does not see all your charitable giving. He sees your sin. But when you are a Christian, you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Do you understand that? You do a transaction with Jesus. He takes on your sin and you put on his righteousness. We wear the shoes of the gospel of peace. That being a Christian and telling other people about Jesus is one and the same coin. We're set free by the gospel to take the gospel to our friends and neighbours and colleagues. People of faith. What does faith mean? It does not just mean believing in the existence of God or Jesus, but trusting in him and his promises. And so when the devil whispers anxious thoughts, terrifying thoughts, when he goes inside and puts in front of you all these fears and worries, when you lose trust in God, we turn to the cross. Can you trust God? Look at the cross. We wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and what that means is that the Gospel, the truth about Jesus, is proclaimed through the very book that many of you are holding in front of you, the Bible, God speaks and his words are sharper than a double-edged sword. The Bible is how you protect yourself and grow and change. So what does this look like for our general life? Oi, let's be honest. These are some big picture imagery type words. But what does this mean for the reality of tomorrow? Let's move from Sunday evening to Monday morning. For Monday morning for the rest of the week, my dear friends, how do you view yourself? As a, if you're a Christian here tonight, how do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as a victim? Pray to the moods and emotions of yourself. Pray to the moods and emotions of others. Anxious about the interactions with family or friends or co-workers or enemies, defined by your moral failings. If only they knew the real me. God's call to you tonight is to view yourself as a soldier, a soldier in a war, assured of the result yet ready for battle, knowing there will be landmines and pitfalls and, and broken bridges ahead of you, but urging you to stand firm, stand firm with the armour of the gospel, the good news. And how does that work out in a very practical way? Well, you're doing it right now. You're gathering together as God's people. Again and again in Ephesians, we're told to gather together as God's people. You're doing it right now to gather together in growth groups. But finally, look at verse 18. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. The armory that you have in your fight against sin, your fight against the devil, is prayer. Praying in the Spirit doesn't mean praying in tongues. 
It means praying in alignment with God as He's revealed Himself in His Word. You prepare yourself for battle by praying. Praying for yourself, absolutely. But when's the last time you prayed for the person on your left here tonight and the person on your right? Do you have a prayer list of people in your growth groups and people in your serving teams and people you know at church? Or do you think they're so, so spiritual and so holy they do not need your prayers? That's madness. My dear friends, the, the equipment we need is prayer. I asked you at the beginning, why is it so hard to live as a Christian? Oh, if you reckon it's not hard to live as a Christian, I'm afraid to say the evidence would suggest it's probably because you're not a Christian. That's tough to hear. But the Christian life is not one defined by blissfulness and stress-free. Look what they did to Jesus. But the Christian life is one defined by struggle and it's hard to live as a Christian because we are at war. We're at war with the evil one. He schemes against us. He tries to trip us up. This very evening he will do so. Potentially he's doing it right now. Potentially he'll do it when you go home. Potentially he'll do it tomorrow morning. You can guarantee he'll do it this week. If you're hoping for a perfect week where the devil will leave you alone, you're kidding yourself. The question you must answer is, are you in the fight? As a Christian person, have you surrendered already? to Satan over one particular area of your life, you've just handed it over, you've meekly pulled up the white flag and said, I've given in. Overwhelmed by the power of your own sin, you feel helpless and hopeless. Or are you engaged in the wrestle? Are you engaged in the struggle? My friends, do not lose hope. Ever. In 20 years' time, 40 years' time, all the way to glory, don't lose hope because you know the end result. Jesus has won the war. So stand up and resist the enemy. Take your stand. God's promise for you is not an anxiety-free life or a stress-free life or a drama-free life. Unfortunately, you're dealing with other people, so all those things are going to be yours in spades for eternity. Not eternity, but for this lifetime. But what God promises you is victory. Victory in glory for eternity. It's yours, so grasp hold of it. In a moment's time, we're going to take communion together and celebrate the victory Jesus has won over our sinfulness before God on the cross. But before we do that, why don't we bow our heads and, and pray as the musicians come forward and lead us in a song in a moment. Let's pray. Father Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so we may be forgiven. Lord, I pray for the men and the women here tonight who their entire lives have been blinded to your truth and your light, but whom you have revealed the truth that Jesus Christ died for them. I pray, Lord, you give them the courage through your spirit to come to you in repentance and faith and believe, truly believe. And for those of us who are Christians here tonight, Lord, struggling in our walks, which is all of us, give us great hope, Father. Our salvation is not dependent on our strength, but yours. Help us put on your armor daily in prayer. Come to you, trusting in your promises, trusting in your faithfulness, trusting in your love and your grace. Help us to be like Jesus. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.